0: So we've come to the end now of uh, this uh, quite long series in this letter, 1 Peter. It's an epic letter written by the Apostle Peter. Uh, But why? Why did he write this letter? Well, he makes it fairly clear. Look at the end uh, of our passage today in verse 12. You get the intention of why he's written it. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He's written this letter. With the help of Silas, he's probably a scribe, okay, Uh, and Peter describes it as brief. I'm not sure what you think about that as far as your your letter writing. And it's intended to encourage the readers. Uh, They were uh, there to be encouraged by what has been testified to in this letter. That is, as he concludes there, they're to be encouraged by the true grace of God, They were called then to stand fast in that truth. Not to be moved from that truth or persuaded away from that truth. Rather, they're to remain in that truth. To stand fast in it. Live in the light of the truth, if you like. And given the circumstances of how these people lived and the trials and the sufferings that they faced, they were also to rejoice in that truth. It's an extraordinary thing. Stand fast. In the true grace of God. But what is that true grace of God which Peter writes and tends in this letter? Well grace of course is just an unmerited kindness. We can demonstrate that. But God demonstrates it ultimately and we see it dotted throughout this letter. This true grace of God. I want you if you can just to cast your eyes back to one little um, example of the true grace of God as we've seen in this letter cast your eyes back to chapter 3 verse 18 if you can just one amazing example of the true grace of God it says there for Christ died for sins doesn't it Jesus Christ came because he, he God so loved this world and he loved you and he hates the way that we all turn our backs on God Uh, The Bible calls that sin. We can do that through hostile rebellion, or we can do it simply just through ignoring God day by day. Jesus Christ lived that perfect life that we could not live, and he unjustly died, as this verse says, on a Roman cross. Christ died, but for something. He died for sins. Uh, And we see that if you cast your eyes to chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins. Took a punishment for my sin, my rebellion, and yours. As he hung on a tree. And even for children upstairs. Um, That is the true grace of God. Not the children, what we've just been reading. We don't deserve it. We do not deserve it. It's unmerited kindness. He goes on, once for all, one time in history did this happen as Jesus hung on a cross... For all of those who would put their trust, their faith in that act. And it goes on. The righteous for the unrighteous. The one who lived perfectly, who always thought perfectly. Jesus Christ. The one who was hung on the tree and crucified. The righteous one for the unrighteous. Me and you. The ones who are always turning our backs on God. Jesus died for our sins the righteous for the unrighteous so that we don't have to take that punishment on ourselves but what does this gracious loving substitutionary act achieve what does, is the result if you like of the true grace of god well look at the end the last little clause of there of that verse to bring us to god purposefully eternally undeservedly, sacrificially. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous one for the unrighteous, me and you, to bring us to God. Now that is the true grace of God, the undeserved kindness of God that's been given in Christ. Stand fast in that. That's what Peter's saying. But why did... The readers that he's writing to, why do they need to specifically hear these truths? Why do we need to hear this message in London today? Look back to chapter 1, verse 1. You'll get an idea there of what was going on in the readers um, who first read this letter. You'll see there, Peter is writing to a a scattered church, we see in verse 1. It's scattered to all those areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, northern Turk as we now know it. They scattered there because in the reign of Emperor Nero, when this letter was most probably written, AD 62 63, we know that Nero was persecuting the Christians and they fled. Atrocious things were happening. They were being killed in their thousands. And Peter writes to, to those that had survived and scattered now east to these areas mentioned. And can you imagine how they felt? I guess they were exhausted. They may even be still frightened, isolated where they were. He doesn't underestimate how they feel and uh, therefore he describes them rightly because they're strangers in the world. That's how the world viewed them and I guess that's how they felt as they faced all that persecution. See, that is, uh, I guess, a good point for us to realise if we're Christians here today. we're, We're strangers in this world. We're not at home. But fundamental to anyone uh, who's a Christian and their identity is the fact that, yes, we are strangers, but uh, if you like, the over, overreaching kind of uh, identity we must have is that we are also elect. We are elect strangers, the book begins. In God's kindness, he has worked in many of our lives and our hearts and he's given us the gift of faith that we might trust in that true grace of God. And therefore, we will be at home with him in eternity, face to face. And you see, Christians, we may be scattered, but may be persecuted, but ultimately we are safe with God in eternity. We're elect, but we're strangers today. So Peter continues throughout this letter assuring his readers that though the world may be quite hostile to what we believe and how we live, and we experience that in very different ways today, but we still experience that hostility. Peter assures his readers that God has provided everything that we need. And we, just flip back if you want to chapter 1 verse 3. You'll remember there that there was those wonderful assurances that we'd be given new birth. Uh, that is a new eternal life with Christ in all that He secured on the cross. We've been given a living hope as a result of that and His resurrection. And therefore, uh, we can live this life that we are being called to. And uh, the assurances go on. We're, in chapter 2, we saw that we are not alone. We're being built into a church with Christ as the cornerstone of that church. We are the living stones being built into the church. Well, and the assurances kind of come to their fruition, if you like in chapter two, verse nine, I won't go into all of them, but you know we're, we are there, a chosen people, elect people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation that is set apart for God, uh, belonging to God, a possession for His work and for His glory. And all that assurance kind of mounts up in chapter one and two. And Christians are called, in chapter two, verse 11, to be aliens. Strangers in this world. Strange because we live for someone other than ourselves. And that is strange in the culture we live in. And because we live for different values. We have different goals. We live for someone other than ourselves. We live for Christ. That makes us aliens. It makes us strangers in this world. But we're not to be withdrawn Peter helps his readers uh, with some very practical instructions on how to live today as those aliens and strangers in all of that follows in chapter 2, the whole way through chapter 3. Chapter 4, when we get there, we see the consequences of living that life. It's going to hurt. People aren't going to like it. We're going to suffer as Christians. We're going to be rejected sometimes. That might look a little bit different than it did in those days. We, We might just get a bit of mockery in the office, a bit of Going kind of to be ostracised by our friends because we don't do what they do. Chapter four spells out the consequences Christians will suffer for their distinctive beliefs and their distinctive lifestyle. Although in this country we may not face persecution on a physical level yet, I doubt it's too far away. We're already seeing uh, the beginnings of kind of uh, the traditional biblical Christian truths that have undergirded this country. We're seeing them being suppressed politically already. I'm not sure how long physical stuff will take. So Peter writes to a church in a world that is hostile, both to God's people, you maybe if you're a Christian, and also to the truth of that true gospel of grace. Revealed in the imperishable word that we've seen here, which is our hope, and it is the message we proclaim too. The same is true for them as it is today for you and me, for, for many of us here. People do not want to hear this gospel, this true gospel of grace. In fact, they will mock us and they may even try to hurt us at times. So how would you think Peter would finish this letter, given that that's a bit of a summary of chapters 1 to 4? How do you think he should finish it? Oh, you kind of heard it already, so I'm not going to give it away. But your inclination would be, you know, um, you want to kind of think, should we get our own back? You know, a bit of suffering. Let's get our own back on them, shall we? If they've done us, you know. To those who have been rude and arrogant to us and try to suppress what we believe, let's do the same back to them, shall we? If we were another, perhaps, worldview or religion. We may be hearing words like, take up your arms. If they sought to kill you, maybe we ought to seek to kill others. Well, you get none of that with Peter, do you? The letter ends, yes, with a host of instructions to a host of different kind of people, but there's no instruction that's vengeful or seeking any kind of retaliation. There's none of that there, is there? Look at what God says to his persecuted church, living in a hostile world. Right in the middle of our passage today, you'll see it in quotation marks there in verse 5. It's an Old Testament quote from Proverbs 11. And Peter is using it here. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter wants Christians living in a hostile world to have humility ringing in our ears to be permeating every facet of our lives whether it's the office, at home, relationships in a bar, wherever it is humility all the instructions in these closing verses flow from that expected humility in God's people why do you think that is the case? well because you see That the humble heart is willing to listen and learn and (coughs) change. And the proud heart will just ignore and reject and dismiss. I guess before we look at uh, some of the instructions that Peter gives, it is worth asking, how how do we become humble? See, a lot of people think, uh, you know, being humble means pretending you're not as good as you are. Let me give you an example, you know, say you're a teacher, there's one or two here, you know, pretend you're a teacher, and you, you know, you're doing exceptionally well, your deputy header said, look, I'm fast tracking you, you got to the head of department, you, you know, you're, you're going up the career ladder in teaching, it's such a steep curve, isn't it, I mean, sorry, I used to be a teacher, it's not at all, but there we go, you know, and, and you're there, you're working yourself, you're doing really, really well, and someone asks you, How's your career going? And now the supposedly humble thing to say is, yeah, it's doing okay. No, that's, that's not humility. You're not telling the truth. Your career's going really, really well. You're doing really, really well. It's just wrong what you've said. I was uh, reading about humility uh, when just studying for this, and one of the commentators put it this way, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than you really are, but to stand at your real height beside someone greater who will show you how small your greatness really is. Now some people, you know, everywhere around the world, people do this to a degree, and they might look at, you know, just a beautiful sunset and realise, I'm tiny in comparison to the world out there, around me. Or look at the stars at night, the similar thing. Others of us like a bit of history, and we look back to the greats, and we think, you know, we like to read about how wonderful and how brilliant characters were politically, or kind of, you know, war history for me. You know, and we love that kind of thing, and it humbles us, because we see how great they are, in comparison to us. This commentator went on and so say, Christians, they do it a different way. By constantly comparing ourselves to Jesus. See, he's the truly great man. Cush your eyes back to uh, chapter 2, verse 22. You, you get the idea of how amazing he is there. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. You see, none of us are sinless like the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> none of us. Go on two verses. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. See none of us are great enough to die for the sin of the world are we When we compare ourselves to Jesus I guess we very quickly realize how tiny we are And I, at that point I think it, your your arrogance and your pride kind of begin to fall away don't they Compared to Jesus you see we're all very very small equally kind of helpless. And, and, and we're all sinful people when we look at the perfect majesty of Christ. But through his death and that true grace of God that we looked at at the beginning, then, then, we know that we are equally loved and equally forgiven through his blood on the cross. And that is only then when you begin to see his nature his greatness his supremacy over all things only then do christians become humble because we're measuring against ourselves against christ and as we grow humility well as we do we'll find it much 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 easier to begin to listen to obey To hear his voice as he speaks through his word and to hear instructions as we see in 1 Peter chapter 5. Because you see, God gives grace, that unmerited kindness, an ability to follow, if you like, and obey. He gives that to the humble. Now, we're not going to look at every instruction in detail because you'd be quite concerned if we were right now because there are a lot of them. I've picked out a few in kind of clusters, if you like. But what I'm going to try and do in each one is just to understand what those instructions mean and then follow it by how being humble helps us to obey that instruction. And then lastly, to put it in the context of why that's so important, as we face trials, suffering, difficulties, mockery, whatever it may be, just the reality. So first instruction, look down at verse five if you can. Now Peter says, We need humility. Firstly, what to do? To submit. Now Peter has a lot to say, verse one to four, doesn't he, to church leaders, to elders is the term used here. We have elders, Rob, John, Ali, and myself. And I would love to spend time personally, but I think all, all of us guys, next time we meet and pray, it would be wise that we look at these verses. And we see if we are being good uh, shepherds of this flock of God in his church. That would be a good thing for us to do, wouldn't it, guys? But Peter has a special word to say in verse 5. To the young men, or to those who are younger in other translations. I guess the, the, the call here is to saying you need to be submissive to those who are older than you. That's slightly more difficult as we have a very narrow kind of tranche of of the kind of society. here. We're quite young relatively here, aren't we? But we do have leaders, home group leaders. We do have elders who lead the church. And Peter is kind of saying here, well, respect their authority. Submit to their authority. Listen to their teaching. Follow their instructions. That doesn't mean sort of blindly doing every word they say, because even those leaders, are, as they're saying, they're serving Jesus, the chief shepherd, in verse 4. So if, a, if your hope group leader says something which is completely contrary to the Bible, then we're not to listen to them, we're not to follow them, we're not to follow anything that Jesus hasn't declared and himself. But generally speaking, young men need to submit, that's the instruction here. And young men, probably because that is a sinful trait that is most common within young men. I think most men here would know that. But obviously, the whole church should be characterized by this willingness to submit to authority. Elders are to do the same, we're to submit ourselves to God. Uh, in the service of the church so you see some of the characteristics of submitting the elders do that in verse 2 they are to be eager to serve the church that's an act of submitting themselves for the church not for their own gain not lording it over them but to be examples in verse 3 but to those that are younger the, the young men here especially I think when they're more able as many are here they tend to be more opinionated more rebellious Struggle to be told what to do. And that's where humility comes in. So when we find it difficult to submit to those who are older in the church here, we need to remember to humble ourselves before God. Verse 5 God opposes the proud, give grace to the humble. We need to look to Christ and remember that he has appointed people in his church to lead and to instruct, to look after his flock. Jesus has given leaders in this church gifts to serve you, to teach you, maybe even to rebuke at times. That's hard, I know. And you have to think and say, they're, they're doing their best and it's for my good. And you have to humble yourself and submit to them. And when we get it right, this is so beneficial to us as a church. It brings us together as we serve one another in these ways. Well, that's the first reason we need humility. We need humility to submit, Peter says. Secondly, we need humility there, um, second point there, um, to resist, to resist the devil. Cast your eyes down if you can. Verse verse 8 there. Have a look. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and to resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you, are, uh, you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Is that wonderful image, isn't it? The, it's not wonderful. It's a scary image of a lion. Oh, you can picture it, you've seen it all on TV, haven't you? With the, the lion crouching in the little savannah land, you know, in the grass, looking at its herd of gazelle or whatever it may be, or buffalo. I know nothing here. i was just completely out of my comfort zone. But there we go. Um, and there they are, ready to pounce. And, and the funny thing about the buffalo, or whatever it is, that they feel very, very content, are they? They're, they're together. We're a, big pa- we're a big pack. We're okay. What does a lion do, though? The lion spots one who maybe tripped over earlier on a little something in a savannah land, hurt himself, feeling a bit fragile. I really am out of my comfort zone, aren't I? (laughs) The lion picks off the one who is weak. And as you know, what happens quick as a flash, they run, they pounce, and they kill. And that is exactly what the devil is out to do. That's why the image is there. It's so graphic. He's come to destroy Christians, to drag them away from Jesus. How does he do it? Well, Peter doesn't really elaborate here, but you think about the context of what Peter has been saying in this letter. I think the devil is behind the suffering that we face as Christians. And Peter is saying, be alert self-controlled here be aware that you are in a spiritual war zone that all the trials and sufferings that you're facing are like well flaming arrows of the devil bullets flying over your head you've got to be careful it's not just bad luck that your friends have you know taken a few shots at you at work for being at church on sunday that's not just bad luck the devil's behind it he's attacking you he's he's desperate to drag you away from the church, the pack that we're in, if you like, but ultimately from Jesus. Wake up. You need to realise that you're in the fight for your life. And be ready to resist by turning to Jesus for help. That's what it means by standing firm in the faith, relying on him as the cornerstone, the precious cornerstone, trusting in him, and also knowing that you're not alone. You've got people around you. Now where does humility come into this? It's interesting, isn't it? We need humility to, to admit that we cannot, we cannot resist the devil on our own. Uh, we're like a, a, you know, like a herd of buffalo waiting to be picked off by this waiting lion. But we don't like to admit, do, that we? do we? That we can't fight this lion on our own. It seems like weakness to be able to say to someone... You know, I'm struggling like this at the moment. We don't like to admit that his, his attacks are putting us in danger. All we want to say as British people is, I'm okay, it's fine. I, I can deal with it on my own, I'm okay. The devil can you know, instigate friends to mock us, and you, and you say, Oh, I'm not really affected, but you are. The devil can place all kinds of temptations in front of you, and you say, Oh, I can deal with it on my own, I'm fine really am. Don't bother me. It's okay. Is that really true? I think what we see here is it's just wrong thinking. We need to admit and have the humility to admit that we are in spiritual danger when we suffer and when we go through trials of many kinds as we've seen in chapter one.
1: And we need humility
0: to admit that we need Jesus' help ultimately. And we need each other to help us get through. We need humility to resist the devil. Finally, it takes humility, thirdly, to trust God. Turn to uh, verse five, halfway through to that quote again, and we'll go on from there. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So, we've seen that we must be humble in the way that we relate to other Christians. Secondly, how we, uh, especially in the elders there and leaders, but we've got to have humility because the devil's uh, schemes and lies are strong and we cannot resist them without others and without Christ. But above all, we must be totally humble before God to trust Him. And that will mean something like this we need to accept the life that we have been given. The circumstances that he's put us in. Maybe the way that he has made us as well. With flaws and tendencies. But above all it means accepting suffering in the context of 1 Peter. If you're a Christian you remember, Look at, turn back to chapter 4 verse 19 last week. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves, trust God, commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. But to respond that way, you've got to be absolutely convinced of the God who you're trusting your life to, haven't you? You've got to be convinced that he is a great, all-powerful God and he is a wise God and that he loves you, knows you best. And that he's allowing suffering to occur in your life or trial or mockery, whatever it may be, for a reason. Chapter 1, verse 7 would tell us to refine us, to make us more like Christ. And we need humility to be able to say, I may not choose the life I have right now. Work is, an, is agony, the pressure is overwhelming me. I'm suffering, I'm going through trials. It, it, I may not choose this way of life, if you like. But 1 Peter has shown us now again and again and again. It's a continuing theme. It is suffering now, glory later. Suffering now, glory later. And we have to trust that God knows best in that. And he's wanting to put you through things for your good. And so you have to trust him and have humility to trust him. We need to remember that the suffering that God allows us to endure is only temporary. And verse 6 is such a tonic, isn't it, for today. God will lift you up in due time. And we mustn't think of this instruction, uh, you know, to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand as something very impersonal. It's not like that. God is not some, you know, kind of of crazed, sending us trials the whole time. He does it because he loves us. He's our Father, and He invites you, look at these verses, to cast all your cares on Him, because He cares for you, all your anxieties on Him. God knows how difficult and how hard it is when you are mocked at work, or you are isolated from a friendship group, because you just won't get involved in what others are doing. And He, he invites you to bring your heartache and your sadness to Him, and to, so that you might ask Him, that you may to keep going. He'll give you the strength to do that. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So it takes humility to submit to God's will if it involves suffering, but we do so fully convinced that he loves us and promises to take care of us it's the same picture look at verse 10 as well it's kind of a concluding verse to that section the god of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in christ after you have suffered a little while suffering glory will himself restore you and make you strong firm and steadfast to him be the power forever and ever amen so how do you feel right now do you feel like you've done 10 rounds with kind of the heavyweight atheist in the office? You know, feeling a bit bruised and battered. Well, God will honor you. This verse says, He will restore you. He will lift you up just as he did his vindicated son to his right hand. You may meet God face to face. Can you imagine that day and you might have bruises and big utterly battered by your opponents throughout your life. You may even, as many do around this world, have physical scars as you've testified to the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does this verse say, verse 10? God will restore. God will restore you. He will honour you. He will bandage you up and give us eternal rest. We've suffered a little while. There's an eternal glory to come. So as the great hymn says, um, are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? The hymn continues. Precious saviour, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake thee? They might. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Let me conclude. Let me finish uh, with three things that humility should bring in us. Submitting to elders, resisting the devil, and trusting God. Do those things and we will keep going as a Christian. We'll be standing fast in that true grace of God. Living a life of grace. Responding to the grace in Christ. So remember, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And humility is not the, kind of, the not-so-secret ingredient that makes all the instructions that we've seen here, it makes sense of them all. Humility, God's grace, they go hand in hand. So as well as trying to put all of these things into practice, seek humility and you will find it much easier to do that. Let us stand our real height beside our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we'll see how tiny and small we are and how dependent we are on His strength, on His sure footing as the precious cornerstone of this church and every church. And as we stand beside Him, we will know that He reaches out and demonstrates His huge compassion. And love for us. As he says, you're elect. You're safe. You might be a stranger here, but you're safe with me for eternity. So stand fast in the true grace of God. Let's pray as we close. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Heavenly Father, I guess in each of us there are little portions of our life where we are still proud. We reject you and your word. We long to do things our way. We don't want to meet you in opposition though, Heavenly Father. That is a frightening thought. But rather we want to humble ourselves. Please help us. Though it is our responsibility to do so. We must humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. But the, the response from you is just magnificent. That you give us that grace. That grace that is known now today in the security and the, the purpose of living for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that grace that is eternal. Where we meet you face to face where you'll restore us, make us firm and steadfast. Lord, we do long for that day. But help us now, tomorrow, in the office, at work, at home, wherever we are, to testify to that true grace of God and help us stand fast in it, we pray. Amen. Um, I asked um, Ed... Uh, who's uh, an apprentice here, to, to think about writing a little song. And he did. Is that right, Ed? You okay with that? Um, I was wondering if we were going to sing this live a little bit. We'll do that afterwards. Okay. So I asked um, Ed to sing this song. It's called Castle Cares. I've had a good listen to it, and uh, I really appreciate it. I hope you appreciate it. He's going to perform it to us. The words are going to come up on the screen. And I will simply say, could you have a good summary of, really, the end of uh, 1 Peter, but bringing in some of all that we've been learning of one piece. Here. So I'll hand over to Ed. I'm just to read uh, verse 6 and 7.